0: We are joined by our science expert, Dan Riskin, because it's Test Tube Thursday. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. So, uh, walking a leash dog is associated with the risk of traumatic brain injury. Uh, Do I have to be worried? I mean, my dog weighs 15 pounds.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, uh, it does depend on the size of the dog. That wasn't one of the things in the study. And I, you know, this was one where I rolled my eyes so hard when I heard this. I was like, Oh, people are getting head injuries from walking their dogs on a leash. How big a problem could this possibly be? And so I was digging through the numbers and trying to figure out sort of what the deal is. And in one way, I was really relieved to know that my suspicions were right. This is not a big deal. But on the other hand, there was this really puzzling trend in the data that I can't really figure out. And I've been digging through the paper and I just can't, I can't find an answer to it. And that is that this is really on the rise in a really significant way. And maybe it's just being reported more, but it's this really linear rise. So this is a a survey of uh, people who own, well, basically it's a survey of, of hospital rooms and all the people that come in with different kinds of injuries. And if they come from different things, this spans basically the two decades, 2001 to 2020. So about 19, 20 years. And over that period of time, about 400,000 adults in the US went to the emergency room because they were injured by a leash dependent dog walking incident. So something happened where they were holding a leash, and they were injured. And so this thing might have tripped over the leash, Uh, the dog might have yanked their arm so hard that they dislocated their shoulder. That's not hard to believe, maybe not with your dog, but certainly with lots of dogs. We've all seen it, and many of us have felt it. Um, But also people just falling over, getting pulled over by the dog and hitting their head and the brain injuries uh so the way that the press release goes is that brain injuries are in the top three most common types of injuries it's finger fracture and then traumatic brain injury and then shoulder sprain but when you dig into the numbers it's only 5.6 percent of these injuries that make up these traumatic brain injuries there's tons of different types of injuries and that just happens to be the or that, that just happens to be the one that sort of makes the top of the list, even though it's quite small. And so anyway, I spent a long time trying to figure out what the odds are that you're actually going to have to worry about this. And I think uh, if you look at how many people in the States own dogs, and then you look at how many people end up in the hospital, the odds there are about uh, it it varies from year to year but on the worst year in all their data set it looks like the odds were about 1 in 400 that you might end up in the emergency room if you're if you're a dog owner and then if you take 5.6% of that the odds that you are any emergency room with a head injury because you have a dog and you walked it on a leash are about one in 7,500. So very low odds and not something you need to worry about, especially if your dog weighs 15 pounds. But there is this increase year over year that goes up from about 5,000 a year to up to like about 35,000 a year over the course of the data set. And it's a really clean line going up year to year to year to year. And I just don't really have my head around what that means.
0: Yeah, because that aspect is persuasive, but I also found myself thinking, Dan Riskin, of a covariable. Which would be, if you have a dog, you must absolutely take it for a walk. So you could have the most horrible weather, the most incredible ice coverage, for example, but you must take the dog outside. And because you do that, you fall down on a day where you might have just stayed
1: home. That's a that's a very good point. You get you don't really get to pick and choose when the dog really needs to go outside. And and there, you also found that the odds of an elderly person having one of those brain injuries while walking their dog were three times higher than people that were not elderly. And that's not maybe a big surprise uh, that people who are older have a harder time holding the dog and have a hard time with balance in general. So uh, that's another factor. So uh, you, you're probably doing the right thing having a small dog that's unlikely to rip your arm out of the socket. But maybe you might get a, a finger fracture. I hope you don't. But uh, we'll we'll just we'll just see. How things how things roll, I guess. Yeah, he's a bit of an ornery dog, I have to say. <laughs> know. Yeah, bruised, bruised egos don't count in this list. They, you okay. don't go to the emergency for that. Okay, so new research and why our hair goes gray. Yeah, this is a, a kind of a, a, a bit complicated, but it's it's interesting that they're making headway on what it is that causes hair to go gray. And it turns out that they've found a mechanism involving stem cells that are down in the base of the follicle. It, it turns out that these stem cells are actually physically moving from one place to another in cycles where it goes to one place and produces melanin, the, the the black pigment, and then it goes somewhere else and does a different job. And then it has to go back and make more melanin. It does this cyclically as the hair grows and what ends up happening is that as you age uh, the the cells get stuck on one side of that fence they 're unable to move back and forth anymore and so they can 't go back and make more melanin and it 's a physical uh, prevention of them going to where they need to go so that they can change their job to make more of that melanin that 's causing the problem so uh, uh, just interesting to get a sense of what the mechanism is i don 't think this really points to an obvious solution to the the graying problem uh, but it is it is interesting that that this is this mechanism is getting figured out
0: and Tell me about tigers. Apparently they have personality traits to help them survive in the wild. Perhaps not surprising. That sounds like natural Darwinianism.
1: Yeah, yeah you you know what? I I feel exactly the same way. I was like, well, if you measure a bunch of tigers, you're probably going to get variation in how they behave and then you're going to say that that's correlated with something. So this comes from a bunch of there's this big tiger sanctuary in China where they have like well over like 150 tigers that live there. And uh the people that work there know those tigers really well and care for them and know them as individuals. And so what they did is they had those those caretakers uh fill out a cert like basically like a a Uh, A survey of personality for the tiger, like how majestic is it? How how much is it grumpy? How much is it? You know, all these uh, terms that are very anthropomorphic, but nonetheless, uh, they got these scores for the different tigers. And then they looked at how much the tigers eat and how often they mate and all these other things. And they found that there are some some scores in which the tigers uh do better so so the ones that score higher on this index that they called majesty are healthier they eat more live prey uh they have higher group status among other tigers uh, and and they mate more often but the thing is that when you know all those things i think you're going to call it you're going to just perceive it if you're the person taking care of it you already know all that stuff and so you probably have a different perception of the tiger to start with so i wonder whether the cart comes before the horse on this and they already know that the Tiger's doing really well. And so they, asset, they give it all these adjectives that make it come out of the personality quiz is a little bit different. So I'm not sure what the natural, real uh, influence of this is, but I think it is noteworthy that tigers, like any big intelligent predator, have personality differences among them. And that seems to be uh, big enough variability that they start to see some pictures out of that.
0: All right. So tell me, where is the earth's largest log jam?
1: Uh, yeah, you know what? This is kind of cool. There's uh, apparently up in the north, uh, in the uh, the delta of the Mackenzie River, there are tons and tons of dead trees that are just floating in the water. And uh, that is just kind of a neat thing that would be kind of fun to go see, except that uh, people that care about carbon and where it is in the world point out that that's a lot of carbon. And so that's storing all that carbon and keeping it out of the atmosphere. And so it's a carbon pool. And that's a good thing. And so um, it's not just one spot where all the trees are. Are. The Delta actually covers a huge geographic area. Um, and so there are thousands of these smaller deposits, but uh, the biggest one is the size of uh, 20 football fields and has uh, all, all kinds of trees lying there that, that range in age from very recent to some dating back to the first century after uh, like 690 common era, they did some carbon dating. So, But there's just a bunch of trees lying up there, and I'm kind of curious to go see it sometime. So uh, that's that's the, the new paper that bunch of carbon researchers are getting excited about. Your bucket list always makes, <laughs> always amuses me because. It'd yeah. be cool to see all those trees. I lo- just love to go there and just be like, there it is. That's yeah. the biggest log jam in the world. Thanks a lot, sir. Thank
0: you. Dan Riskin, our science expert, joins us every Thursday for Test Tube Thursday. And who am I to mock Dan Riskin's bucket list? Because mine includes wearing a tricorn hat. So, you know, there you are.